Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Well, regardless of your beliefs about God, religion, or the Bible, or Christianity, uh, almost everyone will acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the most widely recognized person to ever live. He's the most famous person in all of history, and his life has left the greatest impact on the world more than any other. He influenced uh, everything from art to politics to literature to medicine and everything in between. I mean, even our calendar system is based on his life, right? B.C. being a reference to before Christ, and A.D. being a reference to Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. Uh, You type the name Jesus into your Google browser, and you're going to come up with hundreds of billions of results. Hundreds of billions of results, and billions of people today, just like us, all the way around the world are, are celebrating his birth, and they've been anticipating it all month. So think about that, how much he has impacted our world. Uh, No sensible historian would ever question the fact that Jesus really existed. And Dr. Craig, Craig Evans, in his book, Fabricating Jesus, writes this. He says, almost no serious academic of any ideological, religious, or non-religious stripe doubts that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived sometime in the first century and was crucified by order of Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. The evidence for the existence of Jesus, literary, archaeological, and circumstantial, is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Can I get the next slide, guys? Uh, However, even though many serious academics would admit that Jesus existed, many critics and scholars, or what we might call pseudo-scholars, fake scholars, are incessant in their attempts to fabricate or come up with a Jesus that doesn't match the Jesus of the Bible. Every year, during Christmas and during Easter, wild documentaries and theories come out that depict Jesus as something other than he really was. You've probably watched some of these things on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, and you've got these scholars on there all trying to come up with a Jesus that doesn't match the Jesus you see in the Scriptures. And they say that he was just a myth, he was just a moral teacher, maybe a philosopher, a charismatic holy man, a magician, a hippie without a surfboard, 
or an ancient cynic. And an ancient cynic, this is a popular one these days, they were these ragged, unkempt, uh, homeless people that people called dogs. Actually, cynic means dog-like or doggish. And they, they were doggish because they would walk around barefoot, they'd defecate in the streets, they'd, they'd avoid the complexities of life, and, you know, they, 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 they you know, rejected materialism and embraced, you know, whatever's simple. So basically, they lived like dogs. And uh, the idea that Jesus is just another moral teacher doesn't make sense either since he made himself out to be God. And he accepted worship. He made himself equal with God. That's why the Jews wanted to stone him time and again. If he's just a moral teacher, though, if he's just another moral teacher, but he isn't God, he isn't Lord, then what does that make him? Since he claimed to be the Lord. That would make him either, number one, a liar, which means he isn't moral anymore, and then he would be a lunatic as well. A liar or a lunatic or both, and we shouldn't even pay any attention to him. So some theories portray Jesus as a, a mythological character, a fictitious being whose story just sort of accrued over time. And these, these theorists, or you might call them mythicists, they're mythicists or, or mythers, often portray the New Testament as unreliable religious books with little basis in factual history. And that's why I think Christmas and Easter, these holidays that we celebrate, where we celebrate the birth and the victorious death of Christ, are so important for us as Christians, assuming most of us are here, uh, to, to take advantage of these, these holidays and actually celebrate them. I often see these holidays as great opportunities for us to share and defend our faith. Because the reality is, a lot of folks will come to church during these holidays who don't come to church maybe the rest of the year. And I like to, to help and, and praise the Lord for that, right? But I like to help and, and challenge people during Christmas and Easter to think more critically about the historicity of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look at some of the, the evidence for it and, and show people, hey, you know, these, these are real events with real people in real places, and it's actually very intellectually and spiritually satisfying. But we can trust that these events really did happen, and because of them, because God is real, and because he really got personally involved in human history by coming into this world as a man, that we can have hope, we can have real hope that doesn't disappoint. But here's the other thing. I think that, that sometimes uh, we as Christians, in our own depictions of the events in the Bible, you know, our, our movies, our stories, and our Christmas plays about the birth of Christ, you know, hey, God bless them and God use them, right? I love them. But they can sometimes, our own depictions can sometimes make Christmas seem more like a fairy tale. A lot of people approach the, the Christmas story like it's the story of, you know, old Saint Nick. They treat it like it's a legend with more myth than truth. 
Like, yeah, sure, there's, you know, there's some kernels of truth in it, but there's more myth than truth. And so this morning, I want to help us think a little bit more clearly about the Christmas story and the events that happened. And, and I don't want to be a Grinch or a Scrooge, you know, when it comes to nativity scenes. I, I like nativity scenes. God knows I like nativity scenes. Um, we have a nativity scene in our house. We have a nativity scene outside of our church. Okay, but, but how much of that is actually true? How much of that is actually in the biblical text? You know, Mary riding on a donkey. Um, the angels present actually at the stable. Uh, Mary and Joseph walking around knocking on the doors of the Motel 6 in town. You know, the Holiday Inn looking for a hotel room. And an angry innkeeper, you know, turns them away and says, there's no vacancy. I mean, is that, you see that in our Christmas plays, right? And in the movies and the cartoons. Is that in the text, though? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. What really happened and what is implied? Uh, What's myth and what's fact in the birth narrative of Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there? So, and we're going to use archaeology to, to help us uh, understand this text a little better. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and just a little bit on archaeology. Dr. Titus Kennedy, in his book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, writes, Archaeology, over the last 150 years, has not only contributed to our understanding of the histor- historical context of Jesus, the Gospels in the first century world, but many discoveries have directly confirmed the accuracy of the gospel accounts about his life and historical existence. And new discoveries continue to be uncovered and mysteries untangled. So when we pay close attention to the archaeology, to the ancient ruins that we uncover, and to the, to the, to the texts that we uncover, documents that, that we find, it adds a lot to our understanding of Christ's birth in the biblical text. And that's really the primary goal of biblical archaeology. It's to illuminate our understanding of the Bible, and that's why I love it so much and and why I have such an interest in it, because it helps me and you understand what's going on in this first century world of Jesus. It's, It's so odd, I can't tell you how many times a passage of Scripture finally makes sense when you understand it through the ancient world of the biblical writer in the first century. It becomes more interesting, you appreciate it more, it sharpens the application for us, and it it even becomes more personal. So, first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at five settings this morning. Setting number one is the provenance of the Gospel of Luke. The provenance, you might say, the origin or the source of Luke's gospel. You know, when you watch something like the Da Vinci Code or these documentaries on TV that try to, you know, come up with a Jesus uh, of their own making, basically, um, you need to know that they're relying on late, I would say late, as in 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, apocryphal, pseudepigraphal, documents that uh or even later than that these are these are writings that like the epistle of barnabas or of mary or something that do not harmonize with the bible and the people who wrote them 
lived long after the fact. Second century, third century. So these, these folks who wrote these apocryphal writings they didn't know Jesus or the apostles. They weren't eyewitnesses. Sometimes they didn't even know the geography of Israel. In the epistle of Barnabas, it talks about you know, the, the, the apostles rowing across the Sea of Galilee all the way to Nazareth. If you know the geography of Israel, that's impossible because Nazareth is located several miles away from the shores of Galilee. So whoever wrote that had no idea what they were talking about. And that's why nobody takes these texts seriously. And archaeologists don't use them when they go to look for where to dig in Israel today. The New Testament, however, like the Gospel of Luke, is written in the first century. And Luke wrote his Gospel through years of careful eyewitness investigation. Years of careful eyewitness investigation. He traveled with Paul personally. He interviewed witnesses. He interviewed Mary. He interviewed the apostles. James, the Lord's brother, he was himself a witness to some of these events that he records in Luke or in the book of Acts. And there was a, a brilliant atheistic individual named William Ramsey who decided that uh, this is about uh, 100, 150 years ago, somewhere in there. And he basically decided he's going to trace the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. And he's going to see if Luke is a real historian. And so he goes around from place to place, city to city, and he tries to disprove the historicity of the New Testament. He tries to prove Luke wrong. He looks for evidence in the landscape, in the ruins, and the titles of local rulers and magistrates used by Luke. Because as you go from city to city, they have different titles for their rulers. And he's looking at these sort of things. And at the end of the day, Ramsey came to the conclusion that the book of Acts was spot on and factual. He came to the conclusion that Luke was a historian of the first rank, he said. And that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. And he's comparing that to what? Other ancient documents. And Ramsey became a believer because of it. Pretty powerful thing. And we shouldn't be surprised by that and Luke's accuracy. Luke introduces his two-volume set of Luke and Acts with this statement. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken... To compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in a consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. And so Luke isn't messing around here. He's not just some religious guy in a dark room with a hat over his head looking at some stones, right? Some like magic, weird thing. I mean, it, it, there's nothing mysterious going on. It's, it's, he's a doctor. 
Luke is a doctor. He's an incredibly intelligent man. His Greek is more refined than the rest of the New Testament. And he, he, he investigates. He's a hired man, an intelligent man, that is hired to investigate these events related to Christ and the church. And he writes a historical document. So it's not just another religious writing in that sense. And let's remember that as we dive into the Christmas account in Luke chapter 2. Um, next we see that the situation in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My clicker's not working again, guys. But uh, it says, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so the situation we see is that there was a census ordered by Caesar Augustus. A census is just an official count or survey of the population, and in this case, of the entire Roman Empire. And he doesn't say this was the first census taken by Caesar, because it isn't. Um, it seems like there was a census around every 20 years during this time period. We have several censuses that, that were recorded by Caesar Augustus. It is, however, like he says, the first census taken while Quirinius uh, was governing in some capacity in Assyria. And uh, Quirinius was a real person who lived circa you know, 51 B.C. to 21 A.D. And he rose up through the ranks just because of his military skill and, and uh, just being a commander. And, and everybody, he started to rise up through the ranks as people recognized uh, the great leader that he was. And there was, there's a lot of literary and material evidence for this guy and the documentation of the censuses that took place. And, and they were empire-wide. And it's during these censuses that everyone was forced to go back to where they were from. I mean, if you, uh, you owned land in Judea and you were somewhere else, you were up in Syria or Egypt or something, you had to go back to Judea. You had to go back to the land that you owned. You're a landowner and you have to be there. You were summoned back for registration. And you have an example of this uh, in the British Museum, Papyrus Number 904, uh, this is the, uh, it's a census edict from the Egypt province uh, around the year 104 AD. And it reads, Gaius Vibius Maximus, uh, that's the name of my next child, prefect of Egypt. Seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census, it is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing out of their provinces to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also attend diligently to the cultivation of their allotments. 
So everybody go home and work on your houses and wait for the government to knock on the door. Hurry up and wait, basically. How'd you like that? Right? Uh, I mean, talk about government overreach. Imagine you're, you have a, you're, in a, you're a contractor and you have a building project in Egypt and you got to go home just so Caesar can inflate his head with how many people are in his empire and so he knows how to tax you even more precisely. Right? Talk about frustrating. I'm going to talk about that more tonight, by the way, too. But um, Mary and Joseph clear up in Nazareth, have to return to their ancestral home 100 miles south of there. They go from Nazareth in northern Israel and Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem of Judah. And let's talk about these two sites for a bit. Uh, Many times, I think we trust, because we trust our Bibles, like a good Christian, right? (laughs) Uh, We assume these places existed. But that's us. And that's not the rest of the world. There's anti-Christian critics who don't assume they exist. They they assume they don't exist if the Bible says it. They assume the exact opposite. And they will try to prove that these places either didn't exist, number one, or that they weren't inhabited during the time that the Bible says they were. And so these critics will try to find anything that will disprove the Bible. I mean, there's even a book out there by a pseudo-scholar called the myth of Nazareth. (laughs) The myth of Nazareth, as if it didn't exist. But this is the stuff you find out there on the internet. It's everywhere. And for many years, here's the thing, there was no definitive archaeological evidence for Nazareth and its existence or inhabitation during the time of Jesus. But for many years, there wasn't any evidence for a lot of biblical places. Why is that? Well, because number one, We have cities built on top of these places that you can't just go tear someone's house down to dig underneath it. It just doesn't work that way. You have to wait until there's some sort of construction project to dig there. And that's the way it is at Nazareth. There's a modern city built on top of this area. And then secondly, it's because the discipline of archaeology is only 150 years old. This is a relatively new practice and before that I mean even before the modern state of Israel 1948 this land well before the British took over I mean it was you know it was a closed country it'd be like trying to walk into Saudi Arabia and dig there right see how far you get uh they wouldn't let you and so we are really right now living in the golden age of archaeology and we're uncovering all sorts of things all the time, and yet only 1% of Israel has been excavated, believe it or not. Um, But uh, just because, you know, something uh, hasn't been discovered yet, it's kind of like archaeologist Kenneth Kitchen said, he's an Egyptologist guy, he's an Old Testament guy, but he said, he used to say this, he said, absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So just because you haven't found something yet relating to the Bible doesn't mean it didn't exist. You just need to give it more time. And uh, people used to think Sargon or David weren't real people either, like King David. But give it more time, and what do we find? We uncover all sorts of stuff with their names on them. So 
Uh, with Nazareth, we've dug there in recent years, and we've found structures like houses and olive presses and material culture, you know, the pottery, coins, uh, tombs, ritual baths called mikvot. Uh, they've all been dug up, and that's, by the way, where they did these immersion baptisms in the first century. They were in Jewish ritual baths, step pools, where you'd go down into them. They're everywhere in Israel, and uh, even beyond that in Jewish communities. But um, they've dug up a small village in the first century, just like the Bible records. It's a small 10-acre agricultural community that might have had 400 people in it. That was Nazareth in the first century. And Nazareth is, is where uh, uh, the, the first annunciation of the birth of Christ took place by the angel Gabriel. And there's a large church there called the Church of the Annunciation, which sits on that claimed site. And believe it or not, uh, there's actually good historical credence for that being the actual site. Um, because churches gets built on another church that was destroyed, that was built on another church that was destroyed. I mean, they go all the way back to the second or third century uh, as places where Christians were visiting all the way back then. But um, as for Bethlehem, there's, there's two of those in Israel. One in Galilee near Nazareth, and then there's another one way down south in Judah. And Matthew's account clearly says it's Bethlehem in Judea, which would be about six miles south of Jerusalem. And some people, especially those, I think, who, who live in cities, have a hard time imagining a pregnant woman traveling 100 miles like this, you know, from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But this was the first century. They, they didn't have cars and this was pretty normal, actually. Jews from Galilee would make three, three of these trips in a year, just going down to Jerusalem for the appointed feasts. And besides that, I mean, the government don't care if you're pregnant, right? You've got to go one way or another. They could care less. And so they, the census required it. And in reality, there was probably more than one pregnant woman who made a significant journey like they did during the census. But uh, Luke, Luke also calls Bethlehem the city of David. In the Old Testament, the city of David is a title for Jerusalem, you know, the city of Jebus. But in the New Testament, uh, Bethlehem is the city of David is Bethlehem because he, he's just saying this is where David is from. This is where David was born. And Joseph is from the lineage of David, so that's where he returns to. My guess is that he owned land, and so did his family, in Bethlehem. This is where he was actually from. That's what the text says. 1 Samuel 17.12 says, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And then Ephrathite. Ephrathite. What does that remind you of? Bethlehem Ephratha. Micah 5.2 that specifically predicts the Messiah who's going to be born in Bethlehem of, not of Zebulun, but of Judah. God, 700 years before the fact, said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. A little, tiny insignificant town it's like saying he's going to be born in Berea Nebraska okay or I don't know Crawford or Ulrichs anywhere small right that's insignificant 
this is the place. Count on it. And that's exactly what happened. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, and his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So an eternal one, Messiah, is going to step down into the world, and this is where it's going to happen. And you know how we know that that prophecy wasn't written after the fact? There's a big find in archaeology called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, found at Qumran, down by the Dead Sea, what? The prophecy of Micah on a document written 125 years before Christ. Isn't that powerful? Many would naturally doubt such a prophecy, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, you cannot deny And so, it's an amazing thing. As the prophet Micah states, this is an insignificant town. For shepherding and for farming, it's my kind of place, I tell you. I like to think of Jesus as as a small town kid. He grew up near bustling places like Jerusalem and, and Sepphoris, maybe, near Nazareth. These are cosmopolitan areas, and yet, the Bible only mentions him going, you know, and growing up in these, these smaller towns, um, excavations in 2015 and 2016 next to the Church of the Nativity, which is the, the claimed site of the birth of Jesus, uh, they've discovered evidence of a first century village right there. Um, the non-Christian archaeologist, Dr. Shimon Gibson, this guy's not a Christian, but he's digging right next to the Church of the Nativity He says this, after digging at the site, I mean, just seven years ago, he says, well, again, there's a a big city right in this area. You can't just dig wherever you want, but they dug, like, right beside it. He says, what we've been able to prove up until now is the existence of a village from the time of Jesus. There's a first century village right underneath the Church of the Nativity. And uh, beneath the Church of the Nativity are also caves, Caves, where it's believed that Jesus was born. And you might think, caves, why caves? I thought he was born in a stable, like a wooden barn out on the South 40. Well, yes and no. He was born, yes, in a stable, but not necessarily a wooden one. It might have been a cave. Let's, we're going to talk about that. But first we have to talk about this famous inn. You know the inn in the movies? And they go knocking around. You know, the Holiday Inn, basically, of Bethlehem. Uh, Luke 2.7 says, She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that Greek word for inn here is kataluma. Kataluma. Uh, most translated as inn. Uh, it makes us think of a holiday inn. It makes us think of a Motel 6. But the word can just mean room or lodging or guest room. It's, just a, it's a guest room. You might say there was no place or space for them, no space, topos, for them in the guest room, the Cataluma. No topos for them in the Cataluma, no space for them in the guest room. Modern translations are recognizing this, that this is the most appropriate translation is guest room. Uh, this is the same word in Luke 22, 11 through 12, which says, uh, when Jesus says, where is the guest room? Where's the the Cataluma, where I may eat, 
the Passover with my disciples. Uh, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepare it there. So here, Cataluma refers to the upper room where Jesus spent the last night of his life. So there's a Cataluma involved in the beginning of his life, and there's a Cataluma involved in the end of his life. Um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, also uses the word Cataluma simply refer to a room in a house, not a hotel necessarily. And what's interesting is that if Luke wanted to say there was no room for them in the hotel, well, he could have used a term like he did in Luke 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. In the story of the Good Samaritan, I hope you guys are all familiar with that, right? Luke 10, 34, um, the, the Good Samaritan takes this man who's been beaten and stoned on, on the Jericho Road. Normal thing that happened there. But a dangerous road to travel on in the wilderness. But he, the Good Samaritan takes that guy to a, an inn. Again, the same word used in your English Bible, but it's a pandakion. It's not a cataluma. And he even mentions an innkeeper, specifically. So, those aren't the words that Luke used in the Christmas event, which means that he probably meant something different in Luke chapter 2. That it wasn't a hotel, there was probably no anxious search and, 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 you know, and an angry innkeeper and all of that. Uh, archaeologist Titus Kennedy said it's unlikely that Bethlehem even had an inn since it was the only a small vill- Judean village at that time and inns were more common in Hellenistic areas, Greek areas, major roadways in larger cities. And so I, I don't want to burst that bubble. Don't throw tomatoes at me. But I don't think there was a holiday inn in Bethlehem. Does that mean I'm going to burn my nativity sets and and give the kid a hard time at the Christmas play who's playing the innkeeper? No, not at all, not at all. Um, The idea that the inn was actually an upper room fits with the first century style Jewish homes, though. Uh, Israelite houses frequently had upstairs rooms and guest rooms for family who were coming to visit. Do you have a guest room in your home? I do. I'm working on it right now trying to make it more suitable for guests. And uh, family was an important part of the culture, and it was the most essential of all relationships. I mean, not to take care of your family, even Paul says in the New Testament, is what? It's, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't take care of your family. So family's important. That's a good reminder this time of year. I have a phone call to make, by the way. Take care of family. Talk to your family. But they typically had living quarters upstairs, and then they would um, work downstairs in their houses, kind of like you see in the picture there. They, they eat and sleep upstairs, and they would cook and work and do domestic things downstairs. You see uh, stalls downstairs, and there's mangers there where, the, where some of the animals would stay behind on that one portion of the house there. Um, um, you, you notice mangers and troughs in that picture separating the stables from the workplaces, and uh, that's just part of the housing complex. This is the way, uh, what you see in that picture, that's the way a lot of people have lived. Small villagers have lived for a long time. I mean, even up until the 19th century. Uh, gosh, it was a few years ago, I was watching a, an old Italian film or whatever it was called, The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Any of you guys ever seen that? 
historical film, whatever, and this is the way they lived with their animals in a room in the basement, basically. And that animal was there so they could have ease of access to the animals, the goats or the cows, for milk. Or uh, they would have the fattened calf in there. You might have a, a goat or a, you know, one of your animals is pregnant or nursing or sick. You'd keep it, you'd bring it to the home to, so you could take care of it. And then here's the other gross part, right? They would collect the dung from the animals uh, because they had dung ovens. You ever heard of a dung oven? You ever been to the Middle East and ate something cooked over a dung oven? I, hey, look, there wasn't a lot of wood around. What are you going to use? That's what you use. So archaeology makes you really appreciate your ovens um, and your modern appliances, your gas stove, your whatever. Uh, I'm so thankful we're not cooking that prime rib in a dung oven tonight. But... Uh, Anyway, essentially what I'm saying is Mary and Joseph went back home to where their family was in Bethlehem. They expected to stay with the family in the family's Airbnb. However, there were so many relatives in town for the census. Here's the Legacy Standard Bible translation that there was no place for them in the guest room. And so Mary might have said, you know what, Joe? I just don't really feel like climbing that ladder. I don't want to go up to that second story. There's not enough room up there anyway. Let's just stay down here with the baby tonight. He could come tonight anyway. And I don't want to wake everybody up or whatever, make a mess, you know. It wasn't an immaculate birth, okay? There's no way. But she says, why don't we just stay down here, clean out that manger, we'll be okay. I think that's what happened. There's so much family in town, they all took up the guest room. And they ended up staying on the first story. And that's where the animals happened to be. And if this is the case, let's ask that question again. Then why is the Church of the Nativity, with a lot of historical credence, built over a rock cave? Why is it built over these caves? And why do so many early records, like you know, Justin Martyr and Origen and Jerome and these guys, say that Jesus was born in a cave? Well, that's because Bethlehem is known for limestone, caves, and quarries. And people often would integrate these caves or quarries into their housing complex. So rather than build a room, they just made it a room. They had a cave as a part of their house. And uh, it's actually possible that Jesus' family were stonemasons. The Bible says he was a tecton, a craftsman of some kind, and we don't know exactly what that is. We usually think that he was a carpenter. But uh, geological evidence points that he could have been a stonemason. And that quarry was even part of his house. Uh, maybe Joseph was up in Nazareth on a building project doing stonework. I don't know. You know how much stuff Herod built during that time period, do you know Herodium? Herodium is this massive structure where Herod was buried, and he, it's right there near Bethlehem. You could see it just off in the distance. And so, I don't know, his family just coming from that area and all the stonework in that area, maybe that's what he was. But uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy, again, he wrote this. I get to sit under this guy. I'm so excited. I get to sit under this guy's teaching for a week in January. Um, he says, caves were often next to under or integrated into the house and they were often used as storage areas for the homes and in the first century or for homes in the first century 
Animals could have been kept in a cave or in a stone pen near the house. And then Joel Kramer writes this. He says, caves made ideal stables and therefore were common places to find mangers. Shepherd caves, as, as they are often called, provide sheep a place of refuge from heat and a threat of predators. And since they remain cool in the summer, warm in the winter, dry during the rainy season, sheep caves are often found beneath or beside ancient houses. And so natural shelter, you even see shepherds using caves today. As for the, the manger, we often picture Jesus laying in a wooden box of some kind. If I, if I go to look up a Christmas picture, if I type in Christmas manger images on Google, the first thing you see is these wooden boxes all the time. It's hard to find graphics that have stone mangers. But um, not that it's not possible that, he, that they use some sort of wooden structure, but um, what we find uh, are many stone mangers today. And sometimes they're, they're cut from a single stone, like the ones you see in this picture, or sometimes they're actually cut right into the wall of the cave, live stone. You could car- carve into the cave walls, and they would cover them with plaster. But uh, stone, stone like that was abundant, while wood, which could have been used in construction, was relatively scarce. And uh, so these, these kinds of troughs or mangers are often found on the ground floor of houses today. Um, time fails us, but it's also worth noting that the angels appear to the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And, and uh, you know, we might, we might leave the angels, and the shepherds mostly, and, you know, the Magi and Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. We might leave that for another Christmas, um, should the Lord tarry. But it says uh, here that these shepherds, Around Bethlehem might not have been your ordinary shepherds. So right outside of Bethlehem, uh, the Mishnah records that this Jewish document, 100, 200, whatever, but the, Jewish, the Mishnah records that near Bethlehem was a place called Migdal Eder, which means watchtower of the flock. And these shepherds, weren't just your ordinary shepherds. They would watch over the temple sacrifice sheep, the sheep that were destined to be temple sacrifices. Even Paschal lambs, right? Passover lambs that were the ones who were to be without blemish. These Right outside of Bethlehem, you have shepherds watching over Passover lambs. And these shepherds come and worship the ultimate Passover lamb who'd be sacrificed for our sins. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if that's, <laughs> you know, what kind of, look at how powerful is that symbolism right there? That's an amazing thing. I mean, if that's the case, this is powerful symbolism reminding us that Jesus is our ultimate Passover lamb. It reminds us that because of this sinless child, this lamb without blemish, yeah, he, he wasn't born of Adam. He wasn't born like you and me. He was born of a virgin, which means he, didn't in, he did not inherit the sin nature that Adam passed on to all of us. Which means he didn't have that sin nature, which means when he goes to die for our sins, or when he goes to die, he can die for our sins and pay for our sins in full. The wages of sin is death. 
And if Jesus never sinned, he didn't deserve to die. He was perfect, and yet he became the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And that is the good news of the gospel. And that's setting number five. It's the gift of God. How amazing is it, you know, to think that God himself, the most significant person in the universe, came into this world, into an insignificant place like Bethlehem, lived in insignificant places, and died on a cross because he thought you were significant enough to die for because he wanted a relationship with you. The, insignif- or the significant one became insignificant because he thought you were significant. Isn't that amazing? And that's the greatest gift ever is just the Lord himself. And I'd invite you to receive him as your Lord and Savior this morning if you've never done that. Um, guys, the, the story of Christmas is real. It involved real people, real places, real events. And it's just as real as us sitting here today. And Jesus came into this world to save us from the very real problem of sin. And he offered himself on our behalf so that in exchange he could give us the gift of eternal life. And that gift um, is something that you receive by faith. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He loved us so much that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for another uh, message from your word. What a marvelous thing it is to just consider you stepping out of glory, coming into this world, knowing that you would give your life for us. And that there would be no room for you, not just in that guest room, but there would be no room for you in this world. That the religious leaders and the, and the kings of the time would reject you. And even many of your own people who knew you were coming. Lord, let that not be said of us this morning. I pray that we would make room for you in our hearts and in our lives. And that our lives would be changed. And that's one of the greatest evidences for historicity of the gospel of Luke this morning and that is that you are still in the business of changing lives we see that you're still alive because of it but uh, thank you for another uh, Christmas and uh, just pray that we would remember to uh, focus on you uh, more than anything but it's in Christ's name we pray Amen